and welcome to Tender Buttons. I'm Jessica Andrews. And I'm Jack Young. And on today's show, we've got with us the writer Catherine Madden. Hello. Hello, Kat. Hi, Kat. Hiya. Uh, To give you a bit of info about Kat, she, Catherine Madden, as her writer name is, lives in London and writes fiction and poetry. She is a founding and contributing co-editor of the art and literary zine The Grapevine, and she's interested in tenderness, sex, love, and difficult childhoods, and is currently writing a novel. And she's been published by uh, Bad Poetry Zine, The Aleph, Papaya Press, 3AM Magazine, Desperate Literature, and Not So Popular, among others. And the first thing we would like to ask you, Kat, is, well, we can see looking at your publication history that you write across forms. So you write flash fiction, short stories, poetry, novels. And I wondered if we could talk about that a bit, because I think it's quite rare yeah and I was wondering is form important to you and kind of when you start writing do you feel like oh today I'm gonna write a short story or does it come naturally or do different kinds of stories fit different forms um well I've been thinking about this and I mean the first thing I thought was that I naturally do tend to write in shorter forms so my brain kind of goes in things that are shorter than short stories so flash fiction um i don't know micro stories whatever you want to call them um i don't naturally write in long longer forms and the first time that i even thought about writing a novel as an adult obviously as as a child i used to like start novels <laughs> the whole time and not finish them um was when i did my masters creative writing at the university of kent and we did a fiction class and the uh, Scarlett Thomas um, in the fiction class said just write a novel and that made me think oh yeah you can just write a novel but actually it's a bit more of a stretch for me to write longer pieces of fiction maybe I'm not so disciplined I don't know but um, I have to like it's it's not natural for me to sit down and think of things that span across longer pieces of work basically I was thinking about with with the because I suppose I knew first of all your poetry yeah and then flash fiction is something I've come across with yours more recently um Mm. like what is the impulse or that makes you choose uh okay this this content or this idea that I've got I'm going to like capture it in poem Mm. or I'm going to capture it in a flash fiction or is it I think I don't consciously think it, it just comes out one way or the other. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if perhaps it might be that when I'm writing poetry, I'm mainly interested in the images or like how the language go together, um, how the language goes together to create images rather than perhaps with fiction, I'm more concerned with the action, like somebody's entering a room, they're saying something to someone, the other person says something back. Rather than in a poem, it's like, oh, this word goes next mm. to this word, and it creates this, like, quick image. So it's more... It, in poetry, it's immediate, it just happens. Whereas in fiction, even if it's the shortest piece of fiction, I'm thinking about consequences of actions. Like, mm. what, why does this lead on to this? But then saying that there's so many exceptions to that. So, I mean, it's not a hard and fast rule. Mm. Uh, yeah, and as I say, it just happens immediately in my head anyway. I'm mm. like, I'm writing a poem. Mm. Like like mm. what you said in your original question, Jess, mm. I don't sit down and think today I'm going to mm. write, or this thing would particularly go well with being in a story. Mm. I'm just like, start writing it and then it comes out. Do you think it's also linked to... Like the time and space that you have to write, because I know that you also work full time. And yeah. I know you were writing on your commute for a little while. Yeah. Like, do you think that you say you write in shorter forms, but do you think that's kind of linked to the way that your life is? Maybe not. But. Yeah, I mean, probably. I never, at the moment, I don't have, you know, I hardly ever have full days off. Like, oh, mm. you know, I do it the weekend, but I don't have time to just sit around all day writing. And so. 
Yeah, I have to do it in little snippets. So mm. I first started writing this novel that I'm writing when I used to work in Ealing, um, in not to be London centric, so in the, <laughs> in West London, and I lived in South East London. It's an over an hour commute on the Central Line, and I started writing it when I was sitting on the Central Line, um, and. Yeah, maybe it's quite a long commute, so I started writing quite a long mm. chapter. But yeah, I guess it very, I guess it must be related to only having short amounts. And I, mm. maybe I'm quite impatient as well. I want to get mm. something pithy mm. out. And I want to be like, right, I've written this now. Mm. Um, yeah, or I think in places like London, mm-hmm. like I personally find it hard to write in London because I find it hard to concentrate for a long time. You know, yeah. maybe is I'm just thinking is your form reflective of the places you live or like the places one lives and yeah. the shape of your life yeah. and the pressures on you as well you yeah know, working full time and uh-huh. this kind of stuff yeah, yeah. probably and everyone who writes novels just sit around all day yeah in a cottage in the Cotswolds <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, not really part of the real world so um, Kat can you yes. uh, give us your first reading mm-hmm. and um, a bit of background about your like what what is the novel that you're writing? What's the kind of ideas around it? And then tell us about the extract you're going to read. Mm-hmm. Well. So the novel that I'm writing is, I mean, I've changed a lot what I think it's about. So I think this novel is about loss and cruelty, and the legacy of loss and cruelty from childhood, and how that plays out in the relationships in your life. So this character, Jenny, has people being cruel to her when she's young, but she has an unusual family situation. So she's got um, her, she has different siblings that have different parents and it's kind of about how she relates to the siblings, how the siblings relate to her, how each of the siblings experiences the loss and the cruelty differently and how that manifest itself in their adult life Mm -hmm. um and so at first when I first started writing it I thought it was going to be about sex and love and I wrote wrote a lot of sex and love stuff and then I was like hang on a minute this isn't this the sex and love is just like a conduit to explore basically the relationship between the siblings I'm Mm. quite interested in 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 that um, so the bit that I'm going to read out is about the relationship she has with a friend of hers called Ellie, who she has had a, a sexual relationship with. Um, I, I guess we should say as well that you're you're still writing. Right, well. yeah, mm-hmm. so yeah. that's why I'm not completely sure about mm-hmm. it. No, but that's or, interesting because it's like we've got an insight into the inner workings. Yeah, it's a bit the vulnerable process. actually, yeah. I mm-hmm. think. Yeah. Because, yeah, it's like showing the workings out, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or yeah. feeling yeah. pinned down, maybe. Pin, yeah, because this yeah, isn't you definitely. Have to define it before mm. it's yeah. Finished. Because I hadn't so like just. <laughs> no, no, thanks. Uh, <laughs> thanks for the attention. <laughs> uh, yeah, because even though it's like yeah, like I've changed the name of the main character, so her name's Jenny, but mm. her name has changed. Um, mm. But yes, okay. So I'll start reading this. So they is the pronoun of Ellie, who's the character Mm. who Jenny is talking about. They used to say they loved me when they said goodbye. Love you, babe. And I would say it back, even though I didn't. They haven't spoken to me since we had sex. I keep waiting for the cruelty of this to hit my chest, to make me cry, but it hasn't yet. I wonder if I've hurt them in some way that I cannot understand. I zoom in on pictures of them on Instagram and shame puddles in my stomach, although I don't know which part I'm ashamed of. If I saw them out, I would put my head down. I'm glad I don't have to say I love them when I don't. Mm. Thanks for that, Kat. One thing I wanted to look at with this, which I feel like is prominent in lots of your writing, Mm -hmm. is this kind of, is the way you use dialogue. Right. Because so often, and in that passage, it's like, so uh, powerfully put forth the like mm-hmm. gap between what's being said mm-hmm. and like what people are actually doing. Yeah. So in this context, it's like someone's saying that they love this, the protagonist saying yeah. that they love them, but then is treating them with such disregard or neglect. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. um, and then I just, so I suppose it's like the content of that and then how you use that in a form mm-hmm. um, in terms of 
yeah, the location of dialogue in, in when you're writing and stuff like that. So uh, the question is, I guess, uh, in what way is it like is dialogue important and how do you use it in these gaps between like what is said and what is people actually do? Yeah, um, I've always been, well, I've always quite enjoyed writing dialogue. Mm. And I think that the reason is because um, <laughs> I'm quite like a paranoid person and I think about how people are going to, re- like this as a person, like as, as opposed to as a writer, like I think about how people in my life are going to react to the things that I do, which leads me to imagining what they're going to say. And mm-hmm. usually it'll be like something negative, like them like criticizing me about mm-hmm. something, <laughs> which is obviously a negative thing. But it means that I feel like I have managed to kind of capture the difference, the how speech naturally flows and f- how words fall um which means that when I'm writing dialogue it comes out quite easily and yeah I'm quite interesting in people saying things but then what they're actually hmm. meaning or yeah so you said so people people saying something and then their actions leading to something completely different from what they've said and um when I was thinking that, I was just thinking, well, how actually like abusive that is, mm. because it's like, it, if you're saying something and then you're acting in a different way, it's like it's more difficult to challenge what you've what you're actually doing that mm. maybe is negative. Mm-hmm. So I guess that is just one of the ways that I'm exploring of people being cruel to each other, mm-hmm. um, saying that they love you, and then leaving you or being mm-hmm. cruel mm-hmm. um i'm also kind of interested in although again it's usually right with my writing i'll do something first and then i'll notice that i'm doing it and i'll be like oh that's funny and then i'll have to think of the reason why i've done it so i notice that when i write dialogue quite the thing that i'm interested in um one of the things that i'm interested in is the movements the small movements that people make when they're talking mm. so or from or if I'm doing it from the person the person so in my novel like the Je- Jenny if I'm talking about her if I'm writing about her talking I think about how it actually feels in her body when mm. she's talking like how like she'll like maybe like wince at somebody else saying something and then relax herself when she says something or where people's eyes fall when they're talking to each other, whether they look someone in the eye or whether they look away, or when they're eating something, when they take a sip of their drink. Um, And I think it's because I'm kind of interested in, again, yeah, when people say something, what are they actually meaning? Or maybe they're revealing something that they don't mean to by their actions Mm -hmm. um, and how you can really pick up on that and small actions, you know, someone's lying or someone's not telling the full truth. And I'm interested in how can we, you know, we're all trying our best to understand each other. I mean, actually, we're not all trying to understand each other. <laughs> some of us. Some of us. I mean, we're trying our best, yeah, to understand each other. Um, and it's something that I think about a lot, understanding why people do things, why mm. I do things, how, how we can help each other to just to have better relationships with each other and love each other better. But then every now and then I think maybe we are never going to understand each other. Mm. Or maybe when we think we understand each other, we're only understanding how we feel in relation Mm. to each other. Mm -hmm. And it makes me feel like the understanding or the communication is bouncing back from people. Mm. You know, like, yeah, Yeah. ricocheting, yeah. And... Dialogue is a really interesting way to explore that, obviously, because that's the way that we, that's how we connect with people a lot. Mm. Well, I think that's really interesting, actually, as a like writing process, because it suggests that writing is about watching and listening. Mm-hmm. And I think there's such a rhetoric of like, perhaps <laughs> male writers who like, it's all about speaking and saying what you think and like declaring your ideas about the world, but actually you're it's not it's about observing and seeing you know I think that's a yeah. very that's actually not the popular rhetoric of what writing's about yeah you know that it's about listening and yeah. observing so as a writer you're more 
someone that's representing the world mm. how it is, but then or how you understand it to be mm. based on your own observations. Yeah. Yeah. Also, it's thinking as well. You know, like there's there's this kind of popular narrative around like writing being the most disembodied of like art forms or something like this because it's kind of like uh as opposed to say like the theater it's very obviously like of the body because you like see it physically in space but then what you're saying you want to like focus on which is like gestures and like the way people's bodies are not just the words that are like out there in space that's like a very embodied way of perceiving like how we relate to each other in writing do you know what I mean um yeah I do and just when you were saying that I was kind of thinking about actually my body when I'm writing Mm. because I write things by hand first and Mm. I feel like I I feel very connected to my hand and the pen and Mm. and as well sometimes I even when I'm thinking of dialogue I might like say it out loud and like and do the facial expression Mm. to help me with what the person's saying or where they might be touching themselves on their face or so yeah, I guess it is quite about my body somehow. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah, there's a Catherine Lacey mm. interview where she talks about she talks about that and she says as she's writing character like she feels them in her body like she feels the tension of the characters in her body or she mm. holds herself differently while she's writing different characters. Mm. Which sounds a bit similar. To yeah. What you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> that is similar. Um, I think that so much of your work is concerned with longing and desire and I guess linked to the idea of the dialogue and the spaces between things I think so much you write a lot about sex and I think your sex writing is really really good because you're describing something that's physically very intimate but you often convey a sense of emotional distance through like actions or the unsaid um, and I wondered if you might like to read uh, Domesticity. Domesticity. Yeah. Domesticity. Uh, to lead into this one. Yeah, of course. So this is a bit of, I guess, flash fiction. Um, let me just... Sorry, this wasn't seamless. Um, Showing the process. <laughs> yeah. We're not aiming for smooth and Polished seamless. products. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> so this is called Domesticity. Clara came round to tell me that she had a dependent attachment style. What does that mean then? I mean for me. What does that mean for me? It means that I chase what I can't have, and then when I get it, I don't want it. Well, at least you get it. Her eyelashes are heavy on her dark eyes. I envy that. It's classic. When we lie down facing each other, they look a different shape and now lazy in a sexy way. Do you think you might be a little bit gay? She asks, and I think, you tell me, am I doing it right? But instead, get up to put the kettle on. Next time she comes round, I just tuck her up in bed, but she rages. I'm supposed to do that. I'm the experienced one. I let myself get tucked. She lifts up my top and pops my boob out, kisses it. I decide we need some tea. She's laughing on hands and knees like an unseated cat. I'm wet. I ignore her for a week until she comes to my help desk, earnest in a flat cap. Clara, there's no computers free. She hasn't come for that and she has long bed eyes. Nice friend, the old ladies say with beads and questions behind their brows. In her bed, I am gasping for one. Okay, she says. Okay, and lays back so I can touch her, thinking, help. But the next day, I am heady full of her legs open, her head turned like a Y. I look at other women safely. I almost wink. When she does have tea, she sips, her eyelids silk, her nose twitchy. No, she says, no, the rage is gone. I just don't know what it is. Okay. (laughs) Thanks very much. That's okay. Um, I think what is really apparent in that piece is that kind of you write about these moments of love or sexual desire and then you follow them up with a kind of like mundane or ordinary detail so I think there's this play in your work between like 
the ordinariness of daily life, mm-hmm. like making the tea, but how the like objects or everyday rituals are kind of um, full of a sense, full of like these bigger emotions like desire and how that causes confusion when you're I don't know you feel the sexual desire but you're just making a cup of tea mm-hmm. um so I was just wondering what do you think about that <laughs> um what is it about tea that what is on? it <laughs> yeah um that's quite a British thing isn't it like in any sort of situation like um shall we have a cup of tea and that will yeah. kind of mm. relax things a bit I feel like in general emotionally I'm interested in the way that in times of high emotion, like trauma or desire, the everyday objects are always still just there. Like, um, so, and they don't care. Like, they don't, Mm. like, the tea and the tissues, like, Mm. the notebooks. I'm just looking at what's on the table. (laughs) But they, they don't change because of the emotional impact of things. And I feel like... As a child, I used to think that a lot. Like, I had quite a lot of um, moments of high (laughs) drama. No, like, I don't know, like, difficult times. And I remember as a child, I'd look at objects that were just there all the time and be like, how can you just be sitting there and not... Mm. And and how can everyday life just go on when Mm. the worst thing has happened? Mm. Um, And I guess that kind of and it's like the objects maybe become like these neutral objects become like imbued with something else Mm. I'm trying to think how it works with moments of desire I guess it's like the the juxtaposition of the everyday object with this kind of like the feeling of desire and sexual love and attraction almost becomes like a sacred thing doesn't it mm. like it's outside of the everyday mm. so it's interesting putting but but then mm. it is in the everyday so it's mm. interesting putting them next to each other um yeah and I think as well that just that also reminds me of humor and how I often rely on trying to make things funny and I think like why do I do that but sometimes things are funny because they're next to each other because they're two things that are next to each other that shouldn't be next to each other Mm. that's what makes them funny yeah it's like making the ordinary surreal or it's kind of like a a way to like explode rituals that maybe make you feel kind of like desensitized or like not like with this which kind of deadens somewhat this like alive emotional world that's inside yeah so then like by um Yes, this gap between the inner and the outer, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And in fact, I was talking about this with somebody recently, um, of like whether making someone laugh is the same as making someone come and what... (laughs) (laughs) I've just made you two come. (laughs) And laugh. Uh, Yeah. Um, What a show. (laughs) Yeah. Kind of about, like, it's about, like, pushing someone out of their everyday... Mm. Uh, or making them do something involuntarily mm. and how they are the same and how they're different like it's like yeah I don't know I can't remember exactly what conclusions I came to there mm. but mm. um or it's something yeah. that's shared but not shared in yeah. those scenarios it's like it's a thing you've made together but one person yeah. is having like the pleasure of it yeah mm. and I, one person yeah I guess it depends whether the other person is laughing as well like right. I could say mm. a joke and then just well. a coming as well because <laughs> yeah. yeah and then I suppose I just thinking about what you were saying about uh dialogue and language and gestures as a way of like with like all we're kind of desperately trying to do is connect well some people are trying to do is desperately connect to people yeah and humor is one way of doing that yeah and so then the f- if that doesn't work then yeah. you kind of are feeling like oh I haven't been able to bridge to that person yeah. but then if it does you have these moments of like temporary feeling on yeah, yeah. the same place yeah. connection and in this story domesticity um there's this recurring thing of making up a cup of tea and it's almost like that's supposed to be funny but it's not actually that funny and mm-hmm. i feel like maybe for the reader they might i mean i don't know what, but like i would guess I, what i was trying to do is to be like oh what's the metaphor for tea what does it mean when they say mm. cup of tea does it mean sex does it mean love does it mm. mean communication but it doesn't actually mean any of these things mm. because the connection's not quite working out mm. because these women aren't really like 
talking to each other properly. Mm. So instead the tea is more of like a red herring. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. But it's like almost funny. Mm. Because it's almost like, oh, they were going to have sex and now they're having mm. a cup of tea. Mm. And it's almost, this means that. But it's not. Because mm. the connection's mm. not quite hitting. Mm-hmm. Mm. The bridge isn't reaching. Yeah. Yet. Yeah, I think that your writing's very... It seems to me to be very concerned with the almost. Like that's like intimacy and longing and distance mm-hmm. are like inextricably bound. Yeah. And like you it seems like your characters are always longing for someone even if they're right there. Yeah. I think yeah that I most kind of noticed that I'm doing that or exploring that in this novel with the with Jenny's sibling so she is trying to connect to all her siblings she has two older siblings who have a different mum and a younger brother who um, has the same mum and the same dad but all with the same dad and she she's like in the middle of them she has a different experience I mean we all have different experiences from her sibling from our siblings don't we but um I guess I'm interested in that and I'm interested in how she's trying to connect with each of her siblings in a different way because all her siblings are very different and how it keeps on not happening mm. um, and writing about her and even and like writing about and this is related to my own life this is something that I've taken from my own life as well like I feel like like I also have siblings that are different ages from me obviously Otherwise, I'd be like a triplet. <laughs> Siblings that are like quite vastly different ages from me. Like my older brother and sister are in their forties. I'm in my late twenties, um, and then I have two younger siblings who are in their early twenties. Um, and I feel like me and Jenny are feel attached to our siblings by these like painful sinews. Mm-hmm. I feel like they're the type of that's the type of word that you two use in your writing as well. I don't know. That reminds me of you two. Um, <laughs> Like these sinews that are really, really painful, but then if they were broken, it would be mm. extra painful. And mm. it's like trying to keep them going by trying to connect when this, they were made in a painful way mm. because of mm. parenting, because mm. of things that happened when we were children. Um, mm. And how do you... Well, I don't know. It's not. I'm not really asking a question. I'm just exploring that idea. Mm. Um, yeah. Mm. I'm thinking as well in... Because I've had a sneak preview of the novel. Oh, right, yeah. In process. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of... Partic- we're going to talk a bit more later about like childhood, specifically with an extract from the novel. But there's a part of the novel where it's very much focused on the protagonist uh, on Jenny and uh, she's with her brother and her sister her her eldest the fo- who who are uh, like much older than her and I'm trying to link this a bit to what you're writing about in domesticity where the speaker's kind of trying to claim a presence or like trying to articulate something of their desires or how they feel um, and it almost seeming like there's not a script for it or they don't, they're not fitting into a kind of like either something that's like digestible or understandable to like their siblings in a normative way in terms of sexuality. So there's a bit where they're at a house where I think the brother lives or something like this mm-hmm. and the Jenny's trying to articulate to her sister, um, I think I'm bisexual and she bats it away. No, we're here for, the bro- for your brother. Like, I, I don't understand... Like, she can't understand that or something. Yeah. Like, it doesn't, like, fit work for her. Yeah. Um, or it's, like, the presence that Jenny's trying to claim there in terms of, like, listen to me, older sister, is, like, battered away a little bit. Yeah. And then I was thinking in domesticity, um, there's questions like, do you think you're a bit gay? And I'm the more experienced one. And, like, this... The kind of character's attempt to kind of, like, claim some kind of presence, but it kind of being pushed away or like erased in some way and I I, so I suppose I'm thinking about uh, sexuality there and claiming presence or space for that identity yeah and how that might relate to your writing well I think the idea of creating a space and claiming a space and people not having time time for it is quite 
I mean, that's a bisexual thing, isn't it? Like, people don't believe that it's a real thing. Like, um, you know, it's quite... Uh, like, obviously, perhaps if you're bisexual, you might be able to pass as being straight more, and that comes with its own privileges, but also it's not so much recognised as a mm -hmm. sexuality or it's seen as a phase. Um... And I guess that kind of invisibility is quite useful to explore, um, quite an interesting thing to explore. So in the novel, Jenny is bisexual and her older sister is thinking about why their older brother, like interested in, in their older brother's sexuality, like why has he never had a partner before? Oh, is he interested in women? It's like, oh, as a man, why has he not expressed any interest in sexual interest in women, like interrogating that? And then when Jenny's like, yeah, but you know, I'm bisexual. It's like, that's nothing. Mm. That that's doesn't really, that doesn't matter. I guess maybe men's sexual, it's like men have to prove that they're straight, right? Mm. And... I don't know, maybe I'm on dodgy ground here and just trying to... Where, like, men have to... Whereas women have to... I don't know, let's just... So my experience... Well, just yeah. as a man. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, as a man. Like my, no, but, yeah. but from, a, from this perspective, yeah, yeah. Someone as a man, when I tried to talk to my mum about uh, being bisexual, yeah. and my sister came out as gay, like, a long time ago, yeah. and that was, like, my mum could get that in a way that was, like it kind of fitted into something which was a binary division of sexuality. You're either straight or you're gay, this kind of thing. Um, but she, and it's not for like want of trying, but just couldn't kind of get to this idea that it, that like my, de like desires were more shifting or we're porous. plural, yeah. yeah. And so that was like a frustration kind of yeah. thing where people kind of can't understand, often understand both, yeah. that those two can be held. And I get that. I mean, I find it hard to hold the multiple desires in mm. my head as it is and I'm the one having them <laughs> um, but yeah because and it's if you are a person that is mainly attracted to one gender mm. it is difficult to get your head it's perhaps easier to get your head around like well I'm a straight woman I'm attracted to men somebody here is a gay woman she's attracted to women mm. it's easier to understand mm. um, do you think know. it's to do with representation too because sometimes I feel like there are like socially acceptable ways to be gay, like that have been, you know, if you think of like the gay best friend stereotype. Oh, yeah. And people might be like, oh, yeah, like I've got this gay hairdresser, he's my best friend, but then they might be quite homophobic in other ways. Yeah, maybe so to gay women or something. Yeah, yeah, so maybe there's not so much, it's not as visible. Yeah. Or not as, yeah, yeah. easy to categorize or. Yeah. I think as well, like I'm friends with a lot of straight women who have a lot of um, who have a lot of gay men friends, mm. um, and also a lot of gay women friends. But sometimes I find it difficult because I get well, it's I get the straight thing. Like I talk to my straight women friends about having sex with men and fancying men and being on Tinder with men. Um, but then also every now and then I'll be like yeah and then I had this sex thing with a woman last night and it makes me feel awkward to talk to them about it because it's mm. like I can't talk about it in the same sort of ways because I feel em embarrassed that they're going to be like because I feel shame around it right I feel shame about being like <laughs> I can't even say you know talking about having sex with women or non-binary people um to my straight women friends because there's all this shame, like, oh, and they're going to think I fancy them because I'm talking about mm. how I like touching this person's boobs and they're going to be like, well, I've got boobs, even though they wouldn't <laughs> actually think that. But mm. And it's then it's difficult because then I really connect with them talking about men, like, oh, giving a mm. blowjob, you did this, blah, blah, mm. blah. And then it's like, it's difficult. I don't know mm. if that really answers the question. It's just brought up something. Mm. I think um, on the topic of shame, yeah. that seems really important in your writing as well. Mm. And so linked to that, thinking of the first section that you read, and there's a bit, if I can find it, um, where the, you talk about zooming in on pictures of them and shame puddling in your stomach, that you're not, not sure what... Not my stomach. That's <laughs> it. Not my stomach. Oh, yeah, it, but the characters. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's what I mean. Um, and 
them not knowing which part they're ashamed of. Yeah. That's because I was reading directly from Oh, yeah, no, <laughs> so, sorry, I wasn't telling um, you off. And then in lots of other moments in your writing, there's talk about the shame that men make you feel yeah. romantically. And so I guess I'm interested about, like, w- if the shame is located and coming from different places across genders. Yeah, I think about this quite a lot. And I think I don't, it's obviously all coming from the same place, shame around sexuality and because of patriarchy and, and, a, and like heteronormative ways of being. But then they're coming out from different angles. So with men, I'm often ashamed about wanting sex with men and being dominant and active and seeking that out because it's supposed to be that men um come on to you and so that's the, the shame I feel ashamed if for um pursuing sex with men I think mm. but with people of other genders and with more like queer sexual experiences the shame is just an internalized home is internalized homophobia it's mm-hmm. mm. this is the wrong thing to do i shouldn't be doing this mm-hmm. and you know and it's difficult because say with my family like with certain people in my family i i who i'm quite close to and i can talk about relationships and sex with they only want to hear about the relationships and sex with the men. And then if I talk about, like, oh, and then I got off with so-and-so last night, who's a woman? They'll be like, no, I, oh, I don't want to hear about this. And then, mm. and it's, so, yeah, so I think they come from different places. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's, they all come from the same places that you're, they, but then they all, sorry, no, they don't come from different places, but they're different articulations of the, of, of something from the same place, which is, as a woman, you should be, your romantic and sexual um, desires should be to be with one man mm. monogamously. Mm. And he should... He has to choose And you. he has to choose <laughs> you, yeah. And, mm-hmm. like, I still have this thing where I think a man is going to come and save me. And it's always, like, save me from what? Save me from being a big mess. But it's still, like, some knight in charming armor is going to come and save me and he's going to be more clever than me and he's going to teach me things and it's bullshit isn't it and it's not yeah. <laughs> and it hasn't happened yet <laughs> well we can all dream yeah yeah fingers <laughs> crossed our night is gonna come so if it's all right of you cat yes can we read another extra yeah which and one this, do you want um the one that's from the first part of your novel. Okay, so this is the first chapter of my novel. Um, so it's from Jenny. Um, it is the first 10 years of her life. But it's not going to last 10 years for me to read it, obviously. Um, where is it? Okay. So this is from the point of view of her as a child. Um In the beginning was her big house, and even though she had a baby brother, she was quite lonely, actually, because when her brother became a toddler, he was so cute, but when she would try and sit next to him on the sofa and read her Enid Blyton book, he would move further down the sofa so as not to sit next to her. And when she moved up again to be next to him, he moved again until he was actually sitting on the arm of the sofa, twiddling his nice hair, looking forward with a cross look and sucking his blankie. By this point, she would think, I've got the picture, thanks, and go off to read her Enid Blyton book in one of the rooms at the top of the house, which is where her older half-brother and sister would stay when they were home. But actually, both of these rooms were quite dusty, which just goes to show that they didn't come to visit very much at all. In fact, they were always in London. Natalie in North London and Sam in South London, so Natalie told her. And she liked that. It was neat and easy to remember. And actually... She doesn't like to call them her half-brother or half-sister because this makes them seem so much further away and as if she has even less right to be part of their grown-up lives of flats and clubs and uni and the tube than she already did. Although, 
If she didn't say half and say she was at school or something, it could always lead to her saying something like, my brother's mum, and then children and teachers alike would stare at her as if she was the one that was stupid and they'd forgotten all about learning about the Tudors and the six wives of Henry VIII. When they had learnt this, Jenny had felt that she was like Mary, so hated that she turned bloody, but if she was to go by the order of wives and children, she would have to admit she was Elizabeth who of course turned out to be the greatest queen of England. Now, when it was the weekend, her dad would come and say, you're always in your room, Jenny, which was actually a stupid thing to say because she was in Natalie's room, lying on her musty bed and looking at the photographs on the wall of Natalie and her friends when they were spotty. And secondly, because she seemed to remember that last weekend she was in the garden with her dad when she said she was bored and he had said that Natalie and Sam were never bored when they were her age because they amused themselves when actually she thinks he means they played with each other because when he when she asked her dad how they amused themselves he said he wasn't sure but thinks they invented little games although she wouldn't actually say out loud or even think again that her dad had said a stupid thing to say because actually He was only worried about her, and that made her feel deeply serious in a way that led to her learning how to do the trick, where she stared at herself for a long time in the mirror. She did this until her face wasn't hers anymore, but instead looked like a painting of a woman she had seen in a museum. Then she would be on the brink of something almost too much, but it would end with a stomach flip and a shudder, and that was cold and delicious. And sometimes she would go to the market with her dad in his car and he would ask her to write a list of all the things they needed from the market and before they got to the market, like to drop off the dry cleaning. Her dad's hand at the market was hot and crisp and she really liked holding it. What she didn't like was how fast he walked and also how fast he spoke, which meant she couldn't hear him so he'd run run along and say, What? Dad? Pardon? And he'd be annoyed then and tut and not even stop walking when he repeated himself, which meant that there was still not much of a chance that she'd hear it, seeing as she had to concentrate on trying to keep up as well. The main reason they were going to the market, and actually why her dad went every Saturday, sometimes taking her with him and sometimes leaving her at home, was to go to the collector's centre. The place looked really different from the other market stalls. It had a nice wooden front as if it was just a shop and not part of a market like that at all. Inside there were rows and rows of exciting things, toys that weren't meant to be played with, coins backed in a special way with cardboard. An old man worked there who was always wearing a polo shirt collar up and a young woman too who could be his wife or daughter or could just work with him with black hair scraped back neatly on her head. Both of them liked her dad, especially the woman whose face would look softer and more open when he spoke to her about the stamps he was there to buy and sell. On the way home, it got dark and she noticed that it was actually going to be autumn. She knew when they got in that her mum would be there playing with her little brother Henry and she wouldn't know if her mum was going to be angry at her or not. So, if she could just say something small like, it's getting darker earlier now, isn't it mum? She would be able to tell from her mum's answer if she was angry or okay. And if she did sound a little bit angry, Jenny could just go upstairs to the top of the house and read her book until dinner time, and so wouldn't risk things going too far with her mum's anger like they could do if she would have, for example, gone in unprepared and chatty, perhaps excited about having been with her dad at the market, as if her mother's anger didn't exist. The worst thing happens when she is ten, and it makes her regret all those times she's been at the top of the house and not with her dad, or when she was with him saying she was bored, because actually how could she have been bored when he was there? One day her grandma picks her up from school and is quiet. Jenny skips along and feels happy, even though it is cold, but when she gets home Henry says, Don't you know our daddy's in hospital? And her grandma takes him quickly out of the room. Then she notices that her mum is sitting on the kitchen table with her face collapsed and she was crying in a way that I find disgusting and she says, your dad is dead, that he has died, but then she says, Mark's dead and I didn't like that because he was my dad and I didn't ever call him Mark. And when I wake up, I hear my dad's voice deep in the kitchen below my bedroom, but then something's not right, a different trunk. sorry, a different twang and I realise with a thud that it's Sam come home because our dad is dead 
is still dead, will always be dead, and I had just, and it would be the last time I would have forgotten. Hmm. Oh, I feel a bit emotional. <laughs> <laughs> um, thanks so much for that, Kat. That's okay. What I wanted to look at with that, first of all, was this kind of like, decide, like from a child's perspective, which you write so brilliantly there, uh, the kind of like disidentifying thing that happens when you like are, le are moving through childhood or out of childhood. You know, there's that amazing bit w with when the Jenny's looking in the mirror and she, like her face is no longer her face. And it's like then linked to a painting of a woman. So it's like, there's then there's history and there's like child times like in the present and very immediate. And it's like all happening at the same yeah. time. But then all of us, like you, you're having this shift happening where it's like a separation. Yeah. And I was also thinking as well, right at the end there, uh, when Jenny learns about her dad's death and the separation, it's like someone calls him Mark, his real name. He's no longer just her dad and her mother's, like Jenny perceives her as disgusting because she's meant to be a mother, meant to be protecting, and she's just sobbing, like her vulnerability. So, yeah, I suppose with identity and writing from this childhood perspective, uh, what is the kind of disidentifying, like, what were you capturing there? Kind of? I think, well, what I'm interested in about being a child and, what, and why I think I keep on going back to writing about childhood is that you're so vulnerable as a child and you're really at the whim of other people and you're not really, you're passive or like you can be brought up in a way to be passive so you are at the, at, yeah, again, like what, how your parents decide to, that who you're going to be you have to just be what who they want you to be um and so i think that's why in this first bit i've like done different tenses and different and then when she finds out her dad's died she changes from it goes from the third person to the first person mm. because it's like you say there's coming in and out of self mm. because you're learning how to be yourself but sometimes if you're not given the space if you're to be yourself it's because you're always at the whim of your parents, so her mother has anger issues, mm. and her dad has a lot of bad things going on as well, and you don't... So, yeah, I guess she hasn't really been given the space to just be her own person, like, she's always... She's quite lonely, and she's can't really assert herself. Um, and the thing about the looking in the mirror... Yeah, I guess that's about thinking of her, her own image as being separate from herself and how she's, it's like she's disassociating really. And as I go on in the, in the novel, I write more about disassociation and depersonalization of coming outside of your body and looking at yourself outside of your body and how that feels and why that would come up. I mean, that comes about because of trauma, I think. Sorry, I feel like I haven't really answered anything here. I'm just sort of saying no, no. a load of thoughts that are in my head. I, I, my my question wasn't so much a question as so a kind yeah. of yeah start up. Well, I was going to ask how that disassociation links to gender as well because yeah. I felt like it was quite significant that she she's kind of looking at this woman in the painting who's like completely passive and outside of her body and yeah. how it's like kind of like thrilling to leave your body because you don't have to think about it yeah but how it's also like means that you become fragmented and fractured mm -hmm. um well I just I sort of feel like is that something that's quite linked to being a woman yeah. like in that you have your body and all those perceptions but you also have the stuff inside and maybe those things yeah. don't yeah correlate like do women think? watch themselves being what women yeah yeah John Birch, yeah um so yeah I think I've always thought about that of well not always but you know since I've been thinking about this sort of thing that you know as a woman you are a symbolic thing aren't your body is a symbol especially well a particular type of woman so I guess a a 
I'm a young cis white woman, so that's how my where my experience mm. comes from. I don't want to talk about it universally being a woman. Um, but yeah, you're you're the symbol of something, but you're also a you've also got your own internal world that's mm. got thoughts mm. and that's a person that the internal world of a person and not the internal world of an object because objects mm. don't have internal worlds obviously um but then also you are an object because you're mm. fetishized as mm. an object um and that's sexual as well isn't it like mm. how you have sex what if you um how you um how you deal with your body being objectified and how sometimes that can be a turn on and sometimes that can mm. maybe might cause you to just disassociate and how you can hold all these things together how your body can be your body and also a sexual thing it's difficult mm. um yeah i guess also maybe the powerlessness of like how you learn to present your gender in a certain way even though it's maybe not necessarily the way you want to present it or the way that you feel yeah. inside um like presenting a feminine well like mm. a certain femininity mm. yeah well, I guess I'm thinking about the age of this character and how mm -hmm. she's like she's not at the point yet where you learn to do those things but she has a sense of it coming yeah like, and as well as just thinking about you know, uh, here the relationships with, um, as a child, you're like locked into certain relationships because you don't have a choice as in like your parents, let's say, well, you know, obviously that's not always the case, but in this scenario, your parents or your siblings or, and there's the bit like thinking of her older sister, Natalie, she's like in her room and she doesn't feel like there's no, no there's no pictures of her. So there's nothing like that makes her feel she has a space for her own identity there. And then, like, with the mum, there's this, like, anger thing going on. So it's like, who do you look for? In in this protagonist, like, the, the women that you're looking for to, like, guide you in some way are kind of, like, absent or or it's really complicated because there's they're dealing with so much as well. And as a child, maybe the loneliness of that or the powerlessness. Or may maybe as a child, you, I think what came across in that extract you read is that how as a child you see things as two-dimensional, like, oh, here's my mum and she's nice, here's my dad and whatever. Mm -hmm. And then because that's not actually what identities are like, when those things start to break down, like the mum's crying, yeah. it's like you can't compute yeah, because you, you think you're taught about the world as in, like, good, bad, yeah. evil, you know, like... But then I think this character is quite aware from quite an early age that things are different for her like the thing with the half brother and half sister mm. thing like she's at school and people are like you have a mum you have a dad you have brother and you had sisters mm. and people don't understand how her um her situation was is different mm. so I think she becomes aware that things aren't actually 100% this or that from the mm. beginning but then that's confusing for her mm. um and and it means that she is looking to be to, for a place somewhere and a, a, somewhere where she fits in a connection, mm. but she doesn't. But it's mm. hard, um, and things maybe come like and and then at the end with where she thinks she hears her dad's voice when mm. after he's died, it's like this is something that's a little bit like her dad's voice, but it's mm. not. It's like again things not quite hitting the mark. Mm. Um, well, I guess that fits into everything we've talked about really, like. The idea of searching for a connection or like a script, yeah. like a not fitting and there's no rules or no norms. Like, how do you locate yourself yeah. in a way that means you can communicate with other people? Yeah, yeah. And that's kind of as well about the bisexual thing with mm. the, the domesticity, how I, how maybe what I'm writing about how characters and like me find it that there's no not the same script for being with women as there is for being with men because mm. the script I I have for being with women is like women are my close friends and it's not sexual but actually then I do feel sexual about mm. women so I you know it's not the script going back to the script with a man is a man's going to come in and s mm. save mm. me and mm. yeah mm. and how do you go off script 
Mm. And see, and that's interesting. Then linking those like romantic relationships that you that and how they pan out when you're an adult or yeah. young adult, or whatever. And then that that's kind of like uh, it's arcing back to like this time when you're a child and um, yeah. And we've think, thinking of there, they're like the kind of uh, the dad not being there and when he was kind of not being there enough kind of thing. And then not being there because he's dead, but then not being there in a like emotional sense. Mm-hmm. And that kind of hurt of that rejection. And um, yeah, how, and then within your writing, then how that pans out into like when you're Adulthood. older. Adulthood, you know? yeah. Yeah, so in this novel that I'm writing, I'm also con- concerned about the, yeah, the unconventional, um, um, upbringing well maybe it's not that unconventional but like the idea of having like different siblings and who have different combinations of parents and then parents not being necessarily not being the kindest that they could be this isn't this is talking about the novel mm-hmm. the fiction um <laughs> and then how as an adult how maybe so Jenny is kind of looking a little bit to have unconventional relationships she doesn't necessarily want to have uh, a monogamous relationship so she's, she's looking and it's like are you how does that reflect how things were as she was a child is she just recreating something that happened to her as a child in a negative way or is she forging her own paths because she knows that conventional relationships actually never work out anyway so mm. she may as well forge her own path in a way that is particularly relevant for her rather than just she's doing the same thing as people have done Mm. before well i think the the idea of like family lineage is very interesting and i was thinking about particularly how you write about the passing down of burdens between the mother and daughter yeah um so the well you've got a poem legacy that i wonder you could read but i want us to think about um Sorry, that's why I say my teacher voice. I want us to think about. Okay. Perhaps we if could you think about. Say we need to think about it, then I'll think about it. Okay. The ways in which the mother passes her negativity or difficult experiences onto her daughter. Okay, and that's in the poem legacy. It Would you like be. me to read that? <laughs> Let's see. Okay, we want you to analyze it. Um, okay. Sorry. Right. Legacy. His legacy for me is blue, forward-facing bared eyes and red fingers. He had a devil's pact, struggled with it, meaning he got sex but had to die early, leaving us all looking round saying, hey, what a fucker. My mum gave me her corkscrew, which pulled him for some years. I could throw it, I'm so angry at men. But it's not a boomerang. It can never hit him or his affairs or his nastiness to children, e.g. me. I hate this, what I've got, picking my paternal red fingers with my maternal bird beak action. Up in the attic, there's a brown tray with what they left to me separately. Blue sauces, warning hands, chronological corkscrew and pecking at my own feathers. Um, Thank you very much. That's okay. Is that the first poem that I've read out today? Yeah. Um, So I I think what I really think is very brave, actually, about that is the anger and the questioning, because I think I think there's like a a narrative of like collective trauma and especially the burdens being passed between women. But I think it's not often that you're allowed to feel angry about that or question that or to acknowledge, actually, I've got no power in whether I wanted that or not. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk about the image of the chronological corkscrew. Yeah. I think it's very interesting. So, yeah, I had to go back and actually think about what that meant, chronological corkscrew. And so the corkscrew is something that gets inside something, right? You twist it round. So this is a corkscrew that's inside someone's chest, and it's but it can attach people to things, but also, like, pull out, and it's painful. Um, so it's about connection, but maybe painful connections. Um, and the reason why it's a chronological corkscrew is that, so it's been passed down to the speaker in this, 
poem. And she is trying to throw it, like it's it's making it ang- it's anger at men, um, and she is trying to throw it, but it's 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 chronological. It can only go forwards. It can't mm. go backwards. It can't hit backwards at things that her father has done in the past. Mm. Um, and it never is going to be able to. And then what do you do with it? It doesn't, it can't stop that from happening because it already happened. So what do you do with the anger? Mm. Um, it's just there and it, it's going forward. And does it help to throw the anger forward? Mm. But then where else does it go? So it's like as well as being trapped, I guess, in these systems which lead to the mother being treated badly by the father. Mm. It's like... That time is also one of those systems yeah. that you're trapped within. Yeah. Which I think is very interesting. Yeah. But then it doesn't, but then sometimes it feels like it's all happening at once. Mm. Mm-hmm. That it's never going to go away. Mm. But maybe anger is the only way to disrupt it rather than to just accept your lot. Yeah. <laughs> or, bury, or more devastating, you bury it maybe, mm. rather than accept. Mm. Yeah. You bury it or you bring it to the light. And, yeah. Mm. Try and work through it that way, maybe. Yeah. And maybe writing the poems is bringing it to the light. Mm. Um, some way. But yeah, with the chronological cooks, go back. <laughs> really, like, go back and think about what that meant because it just, it was something that just came out. So I had to analyse it myself and go back and think about what it meant. Mm. I don't know. Well, I think it's a powerful image because a corkscrew, like, unstoppers things too, yeah right so it's like yeah but it's very powerful as well because it twists deep mm. down inside a cork mm. which is soft like flesh yeah. maybe yeah. well about maybe it's like the same kind of hardness because it's hard and soft at the same time and mm. then it comes mm. out oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> and wow. it hurts it feels like it would hurt when mm. it comes out but it's also a relief mm. um like if you felt if you had a corkscrew in your chest you'd really mm. want to pull it out wouldn't you mm. and then it's kind of like freeing that idea of pulling something out and chucking it forward mm. Mm. but it can't go back is there a freeing as well i suppose like because we're talking about you know like the writing yeah and like that being a process to work through trauma or like by giving it form like the corkscrew to talk about these very complex things like mm-hmm. that may or may not relate to your life but yeah. like generally experience of like different oppressions and stuff then like yeah. is writing part of that is that like i think so i think it's one of the only things that i feel that i have ownership over mm. or I'm maybe I'm writing it from the place of being a child so as a child I felt very um yeah sorry I feel like I've been like oh this could be about my life but this couldn't be about my life which is kind of like what you were talking about in the first podcast well I mean that's yeah. what it's all about that's what it's all about <laughs> so yeah so I'm just going to talk directly about my life I yeah. felt that I had I felt absolutely powerless as a child and when people were quite cruel to me as a child I think and I felt like I wasn't allowed to own certain things that happened. I wasn't allowed to own experiences. I wasn't allowed to have my own authentic... I wasn't an authentic agent in my own life. Maybe everyone feels like that as a child. I don't know. Um, and writing now using my is, is a way for me to take ownership over these experiences and be like, these happened to me. This happened to me this is my life and this is and this is what I've chosen to do with it and you can't mm. stop me. Mm. Mm. Well, it's just like articulation is so powerful, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. yeah sorry. Yeah, <laughs> and especially in a, in a setting where people can't talk back. In a way, yeah. someone's reading your novel, they've just got to listen. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Fuck you all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's very, it is very powerful. And one of the first things that I wrote when I was maybe like 15 or something, it's like one of the worst things that happened to me when I was a child is that my dad died suddenly. Um, And one of the first poems that I remember writing was about my dad dying. And it just, writing this just filled me with this like, I want to say pleasure because I was like talking about this thing that had happened and people had to listen. Mm. I mean, they didn't have to, they didn't have to read the poem. I read it out in assembly, so they did have to. (laughs) Um, And it yeah, and it's a rush of like, yeah, articulating something. Mm. That. Mm. Maybe that's a good place to leave it on. Yeah, the, what the, the rush of? Well, no, not the kind of the importance of writing 
maybe is like to claim space or claim yeah mm. claim things that in the past have been like denied to you or yeah. as a child or, yeah. or whatever it may be so i'd recommend it to everyone <laughs> mm-hmm. well especially if you're a watcher and a listener yeah of things yeah it's really powerful to yeah. like have that yeah. space yeah and i think as well because i had a lot of yeah if if you are as a child you're like quite unhappy and like need to like and people are perhaps angry at you a lot or you feel like you're going to be in trouble a lot you pay attention to how people behave because you don't want to yeah you're super tuned in and you don't want to give them an opportunity to be angry at you or to tell you that you've done something wrong so it means you are probably going to be good at observing observations about people how people behave Mm. and what it actually what it actually the undertone is of what they mean are they about to start shouting at you mm. mm-hmm. um so it's all good for you mm. <laughs> writing and it's kind of like then in in this scenario it's like having an agency over like articulating how it was for you or or like yeah or like what it's like rather than kind of not being listened to kind of thing. yeah okay but yeah on that note yeah Sure. Thanks for well, having me. Thanks for coming. <laughs> Come, back okay. Come back soon. Come back soon. And good luck with the rest of your novel. Thank look you. Good luck to. with your podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Kat. That's all right. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Jack. Bye. <laughs> Bye.